Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today we have as our guest Andreas Krieg about his new edited volume, Divided Gulf, The Anatomy of a Crisis. Andreas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin this interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your own intellectual development. Yes, so... I mean, I came to the study of the Middle East actually from a completely different angle than most people. Um, I started off in Syria uh, studying Arabic there, which is was in 2006, uh, almost for a year. And then straight after that went to Israel to study there. So I, I jumped from uh, one side, which is the Arab world, to the other side, which is, uh, you know, the view from Israel onto the Arabic on the Arab world. And after that, went back to the Gulf. So I've been in mostly in the Levant before coming to the Gulf. So intellectually speaking, I, I'm a security studies scholar. So conceptually, I'm in the field of security studies. And I, you know, I write other books which are more primarily focused on the military and security. Um, but the geographic angle that I've always used was the Middle East because I've spent so many years there. Um, and more recently, since I've lived in Qatar between 2013 uh, uh, until 2017, I began to really undig, um, you know, what, what what is going on in the Gulf, which I think the Gulf is, you know, one of these areas of the of Middle Eastern studies that have, are still very much under researched and uh, not well understood. Uh, because so few people are actually looking at it. And traditionally, Middle Eastern studies looks at the Levant, Northern Africa, looks at Egypt, Syria, Iraq, uh, Palestine, uh, and doesn't really look at the Gulf. And the Gulf probably was never that important. And I think it has only really become as important as it is today um, because of the developments during the Arab Spring and the collapse of the old powerhouses of uh, of the Arab world as we used to know them, Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, uh, Egypt, uh, Libya, and others, and obviously the only stable co- countries in the area were uh, were now in the Gulf. So I I found that very interesting, and I used my time in the Gulf as a hub to travel across the region from uh, at the time from Doha. So I did not only travel across um, the Gulf. So I went to Iran and all the other Gulf countries, but I've, I went also to all these countries in North Africa. I went to Iraq. I went to Syria. Uh, Lebanon and so on. So I kind of complemented my my view of the Arab world um, or the Middle East more widely um, by extensively traveling during these four years and doing quite a lot of field work. And the one book that came out of that uh, was uh, Social Political Order and Security in the Arab World, which is using a security studies angle to look at security in the Arab world more ontologically, how it is defined and how security might be defined moving forward. Uh, after the Arab Spring, and I think this is 
this is also where this book starts, the new book, uh, Divided Golf, um, because it's, for the most part, an ontological uh, uh, understanding, a conceptual understanding of uh, of where these different rulers and where these different countries stand in um, in identifying or interpreting, analyzing security in the Arab world. And I, I find that very interesting because most of the Middle Eastern studies scholars look at the Middle East entirely empirically, which is great. Um, and, and I do so as well. Um, but I think it's also important to look at it conceptually, to look at the, the ontological uh, premises uh, that underline how these different states look at each other and uh, look at society. Uh, what are their wider worldviews on, um, on how the region is supposed to work and what are their visions for how to reshape the, the, the entire region in the future? So it's not just the Gulf, but the wider Arab world, and um, so I've done. Today I'm doing quite a lot of things. So I'm 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 a member of the Royal College of Defence Studies, where I train, um, or I train is probably not the right word, but educate um, military officers from Middle Eastern countries, particularly from the Gulf. Um, this is what our department at, at King's College has done for many many years. I'm uh, I'm working as an analyst as well. Uh, as an expert for media outlets um, and uh, so television and print in particular, and also as an analyst for private co- companies who are operating in the Gulf who have particular uh, issues uh, concerning political risk in the area. So I've got these three uh, segments, and this book, Divided Gulf, is drawing on all these three. So it's on my academic expertise and my intellectual um, uh, evolution until today, as well as on my um, on my uh, analysts' background, so a lot of the interviews and a lot of the discussions I've had with diplomats, um, you know, um, and policymakers across the region, um, were done probably not as an academic, but more as an analyst. And so I, I try to compound all these three elements uh, in there. Uh, and obviously, one very important element was the element of me being in Doha between 2013 and 2017, where we built up the a joint Command and Staff College for the Qatari Armed Forces, which also had uh, officers from uh, Saudi Arabia, from Kuwait uh, and uh, Oman in there. And so it was kind of the attempt to create a joint GCC uh, military college, which does, doesn't look only at the operational military level, but looks a lot at strategy as well. And this is what I teach today is strategy. Uh, and strategy making, um, and my expertise in strategy, I'm trying to particularly apply to the Middle East, where I also consult, obviously, not only local governments, but also governments in the West on their strategy towards the region. I assume that the uh, the college in, um, in Doha no longer has Gulf-wide participation. Absolutely since, right. Uh, June 17. Um, unlike a lot of your other former books, uh, this one is an edited volume, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. Yeah, so uh, when when this all came, what is very remarkable about this crisis, and I'm probably in, in many ways a game changer, is that this is a crisis that does not only exist in the physical space, but that increasingly exists in the information space. So when you look at how the crisis unfolds in 2017, um, I, you know, early on, I was shocked in the way it unfold, uh, unfolded. I was shocked in, in the intensity of this conflict, particularly in the information space. 
and I be, and, and you know when being based in London at the time in 2017 when when it all broke out uh, you know after returning from Qatar um, I also saw how the Gulf crisis was no longer just a, a a limited conflict that was limited geographically to the Gulf but a crisis that had its ripple effects across the Western world particularly in capitals and such as Washington London Paris and and Berlin and the issue of that was that this was a crisis that for the first time was situated in the era of alternative facts and fake news. And I, I found it very, very important early on already. I said, we need to, we need to write an academic account of the divides that exists in the, in the Gulf and, and try to explain how this entire crisis came about, not just in 2017, but, you know, going, going a lot uh, uh, further back. And I think the important uh, thing here was to find scholars because, you know, after all, and I, I'm, I'm not saying biases do not exist because biases exist and, I, you know, I've got my own biases. Um, but I, I would say that the academic approach to understanding the crisis is probably the most objective you could get because journalists have, you know, they are drawn into, they're always very selective in, in the way they present the crisis and they always look at particular elements of it. So my idea was is to, to write the first academic book um, not only with my point of view and my analysis of the Gulf, but also drawing on the analysis of other leading scholars in the Gulf on 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 how this crisis come uh, came about and how it has developed into this massive divide that exists until today. So the first academic book was supposed to be inclusive. Uh, we did try to reach out to academics who are also based in the countries such as United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, and Egypt. Uh, but it became quite clear, it became clear quite early on that that was no longer possible because of the situation there under in terms of freedom of speech being highly constrained. It was not really possible for them to contribute to the book and write an objective piece. Um, and so we and the other issue is obviously this is a timely subject. We wanted to, I wanted this book to get published as quickly as possible. So we needed to move on uh, uh, quite quickly. Uh, and we did. So we started in January 2018 uh, to 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 send invitations, or I sent out invitations, and um, together with the other editors of of the series. And um, we then, you know, over the summer of 2018, I edited all these different chapters. And yeah, the book was published in early 2019. So it was really uh, written and it came about and published within a year. Congratulations, and indeed, I think you're spot on about the information and cyber aspect of uh, the Gulf crisis. What I'd like to do, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get back to that later on in the interview, what I'd like to do is jump into a number of the other issues. One of the things that you do is you project a very different, very different clashing approaches by both the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, as well as by the UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed and the former in terms of the strategies that they use to emerge from the shadow of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Can you perhaps elaborate on that? Yeah, I, so the way I look at this crisis, as most people look at the crisis through the lens of interests and clash over different interests, I look at it as a clash of ideologies. And so that goes back to the whole point of um, ontology. When we look at what is at the heart of the crisis, then we see two different visions for how the Arab world is supposed to develop. And these two different visions originate in Doha on one hand and in Abu Dhabi on the other. 
So Doha's approach to the Arab world has been consolidated by the old Emir, the father Emir Hamad bin Khalifa, um, uh, who in itself himself being a revolutionary in many different ways, uh, and he was also an anti. He was always an individual who was anti-status quo, um, married to a you know his his. His favorite wife, Sheikha Moza, also coming from a somewhat revolutionary anti-status quo family. Um, they were people that didn't l- accept the way that the Gulf was not advancing and not developing in the 1980s um, under his father. So he, when he came to power in the early 1990s, um, consulting under his father's rule, he kind of came up with this idea that, you know, if Qatar was ever to develop and become an independent country, truly independent, it needed to draw on a alternative um, uh, alternative sources of income as well as sociopolitically redefine itself, rebrand itself as no longer just being a, pro- a proxy or a vassal state of Saudi Arabia, but being an independent country with its independent status within the wider region. And... So this was the one vision um, in Doha. And the, and, and the way for Doha to get out of it, for Hamad bin Khalifa, the old emir, to, to get out of this vessel state status that they had uh, in regards to Saudi Arabia was to basically liberalize themselves, but also advance a, a, um, an ontological or a, an ideological approach, a liberal approach, not liberal democratic, but one of liberal, which is more liberal than it is conservative, which is anti-status quo, which is about emancipating the individual, emancipating women, emancipating people under oppression, working against authoritarianism, creating more pluralist societies. That does Again, the, the word democracy has been used by Hamad bin Khalifa, but he's not using it in the same context um, as we might use it in, in the West. So I think it's wrong to say that the countries were interested, interested in spreading democracy. Uh, per se. I think we, it's more fundamental about uh, political pluralism. And political pluralism meant that you are advancing an ideology that inherently undermines the authoritarian states and authoritarian regimes that were dominant at the time in the 90s, before the Arab Spring as well, um, that, were, that were dominating the Arab world. So, um, and Al Jazeera and the creation of Al Jazeera in 1996 is part of that. It's the creation of a network that for the very first time, independently from uh, from government control was able to develop and disseminate narratives and pretty much Al Jazeera very early on branded itself as being the voice of the voiceless and um, you know it has been highly criticized for being that because they've invited all kinds of opinion opinions um, uh, um, from across the spectrum of political opposition of the Arab world and in that in that way they already Al Jazeera was very much on the forefront of challenging the status quo sociopolitically in the region. So that is one side. On the other side, we have the UAE and Abu Dhabi. And I, I, I need to probably say this uh, early on. It's not really about the UAE. Um, the United Arab Emirates, obviously consisting of several emirates, um, the most dominant one is still the one is still Abu Dhabi. And, um, and it has become even more dominant after the Arab Spring. And there's one individual who is ruling Abu Dhabi and thereby also dominating the wider United Arab Emirates is Mohammed bin Zayed, um, who officially has the status of being the the uh, crown prince as his brother is the official president of the UAE, um, but is no longer fit to rule. So MBZ has taken over um, very much most of the portfolios of governments and it's his 
it's the inner circle around him that really dominates policymaking and the visions of where the UAE is supposed to go. And Mohammed bin Zayed is a military man, uh, very much someone who bases his own regime security on the security sector. Um, it has created a regime which is highly controlling of its citizens. He, as an individual, is someone whose vision of the Middle East is quite um, the opposite, 180 degrees opposite of what the countries wanted to achieve. So he came through uh, to power throughout the 1990s as well. So he, ra- he rose through the ranks uh, of the military. And he has worked with particular individuals also in the intelligence services who, uh, you know, who came from Egypt to the UAE, who also imported a particular worldview to uh, authoritarian worldview to exported a particular worldview to the UAE. And MBZ has taken that on. So MBZ sees is very much a, a pro status quo individual. He's someone who wants to maintain the social political status quo of the region and sees any opposition as a potential threat to regime security. Uh, He believes in centralized governance, not pluralistic governance. He sees pluralism as chaos and anarchy. And I think, you know, it has been said uh, uh, multiple times by um, people of the inner circle, most importantly, Yusuf Ateba, the the, uh, UAE ambassador to Washington, who makes the point that inherently uh, pluralism is... Uh, uh, is anarchy, as we can see on basis of the example of the Arab Spring. They're making the case that the Arab Spring led to chaos, civil war, revolutions, and almost uh, eight years or nine years on, is still in the same state of chaos that it has been, and it hasn't really made any progress. So their argument is, do you want pluralism or do you want stability? And their argument is, if you want stability in the Arab world, you need to you need to endorse authoritarianism, authoritarian stability. So you can liberalize socially. So the UAE are, are very liberal socially, um, but politically they're probably the least, one of the least liberal countries in the Arab world. And I would put them on the same on the same level in terms of so uh, of of political liberalism as um, as Syria or Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly when it comes to civil liberties and the freedom of speech. And, and so you have these two countries, both of them endorsing uh, two or advancing two visions to, who couldn't be more opposed to each other. And they are going head to head during the Arab Spring, with Qatar being the, the, the force that is supporting the revolutionaries in a very naive fashion as well, without a proper strategy. And on the other hand, you've got the UAE who are trying to, um, you know, uh, trying to, to, to roll back these revolutions and roll back these social and political developments that came, um, that, that, that affected the Arab world between 2010 and 2011. And it's, it's this particular clash that I think today dominates um, the, not just the Gulf divide, but divides the entire region. I think that's very much at the heart, this ideological divide is very much at the heart of um, of uh, of the Gulf of the Gulf crisis. In in describing it as an ideological divide, would you reject the notion that it's a clash between uh, two alternative strategies uh, for regime survival, one uh, perhaps more enlightened than the other? Yes, obviously, um, there are particular fears that that come with it. 
And if you look at it, I mean, conservatives in general have a cognitive predisposition towards fear and viewing the, the world through the prism of fear. And you can see that in the UAE very much. Everything they do is based on, everything is framed through fear. Everything is an insecurity. Everything is being securitized in a way. So they're securitizing Iran as a fundamental threat. They're securitizing the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism as a fundamental threat. They're securitizing Qatar as a fundamental threat. So everything is based around fear. And someone who's building a, a strategy around fear is someone who is advancing, is usually embracing ho quite hawkish approaches um, to policymaking. And And that's what we can see with the UAE. Everything they do is very hawkish. The Qataris are generally more dovish in their approach because they are they are more liberal. They don't really frame everything as fear. They they see things as an opportunity. Um, they view also they view the Arab Spring as an opportunity. They've thought that regime survival long term means you need to build sustainable social political relations, which are pluralistic where, uh, and and that engage all parts of society, which in itself is something that we can all embrace in the West. You know, anybody who's a liberal in the West would embrace that idea. But we need to also understand where this is coming from. So the UAE are a country that, unlike the countries, have internal divisions. So it is a more it's a more um, um, heterogeneous country in comparison to the to to Qatar. Qatar couldn't be more homogeneous. It's a country of a bit more than three hundred thousand nationals. Um, much of the country, ninety percent, are non-nationals, expats who are working in the country, but. The national, the, if you just look at the nationals, um, this is a very homogenous community of, they're all Arab, they're all Sunni, uh, with a very small Shia mi minority. Um, they are all politically um, um, quite unitary, uh, quite a unitary actor. Um, there are no really in, internal socioeconomic fault lines. So Qataris are the wealthiest people in the world um, per capita. And then you have the UAE. The UAE are relatively wealthy. They are still one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but there are socioeconomic divisions within the country from the, from the south towards the north, and the Northern Emirates being um, economically weaker and you know the, the, um, the GDP per capita being a lot lower over there. Uh, and the, also politically, the UAE have a history of, um, of a genuine domestic um, Islamist opposition, the, the Al-Islah Party, And the Al-Islam party has developed um, into quite a strong power uh, during, you know, during the 1980s and 1990s, dominating That's some of the main ministries. And um, so, and, and that is something that, that I think uh, causes a lot of the fear that we see in the UAE, the fear of Islamism, the fear of political Islam, and the fear that, you know, there are particular opposition groups that could divide a country and could potentially overthrow the regime. These are fears that the country's never had because they, they, they're living in a luxury bubble. And that's, that's probably some of the jealousy that we see in the, in the Gulf crisis coming out of Saudi Arabia and the UAE has to do with the fact that Qatar is so immensely wealthy, so immensely homogenous, and is living in a, a yeah, maybe in an illusionist, idealist bubble uh, where they can experiment. The luxury to experiment is not something that you, that the Saudis or the Emiratis have because of internal divisions, because of socioeconomic problems. Um, and the countries were always willing to 
to position themselves as 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 an experiment, as a refuge as well for uh, uh, for people who thought outside the box. So the whole idea, and I, we we write about this, or I write about this in the book, um, the the Kaaba, the idea of the Kaaba al Madiyum being the Kaaba of the dispossessed and uh, disenfranchised is something that the Qatris do uh, uh, discuss and do talk about. It's part of Qatri identity. Um, and that goes back to the 19th century with, uh, you know, outlawed pirates who were trying to evade uh, prosecution by other states, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, found refuge in on the Qatari Peninsula. So there, there is a bit of a tradition in that. And we see this across the 1980s and 1990s with, um, you know, Islamists who've been uh, kicked out of Egypt, Jordan, uh, Syria, uh, or Palestine, finding refuge in Qatar. And the Qataris have always been relatively hospitable. Uh, and But that's not, not because they are ideologically committed to them, but just because it's part of their tradition of hosting different people. There's always been like that. Um, and obviously some of these people who've come to Qatar used Qatar as a hub to advance their own strategies, their own policies, and probably even exploit the hospitality that the countries have shown. Is, is the notion of a bubble, is that one of the, the reasons why you describe the Qatari approach as naive, while you describe Mohammed bin Zayed's security-driven model as continuously challenged? Yes, I mean, yes, I would... Uh, so the Qataris are more idealist, and you know liberals in general are more idealist. Uh, while the UAE, are, UAE's neoconservative approach is definitely more hawkish and more fear-based. When I say naive uh, in reference uh, to the Qataris, it, it alludes to the fact that there wasn't really a clear strategy with ends, ways, and means of how to achieve this vision. So the Qataris have this vision. Um, and they haven't really done enough in a broader sense of allocating resources and means to think that, you know, and, and, and understand as well that if you allocate these resources and you're trying to make this fundamental socio-political change in the region, that you will have to, um, you have to be in the game in the long run. And it, they were thinking it's a bit of money here and there for particular opposition groups, uh, having Al Jazeera, supporting some of these opposition groups um, would be enough to not only overthrow the, the, the regimes, but create a no social political order. So the naivety in that is that they actually thought, they thought about how to, to topple these authoritarians, but they never really thought about the consequences of that in terms of how, how difficult it would be to build a, a social political order after the fall of the regime, as we've seen in Libya, for example, or in Egypt. There is an argument to be made, however, that um, you know this idealistic approach also failed because idealists in the West didn't uh, uh, sufficiently support it, and that's particularly the United States, who had they put, and that's the Obama administration, had the Obama administration put more of their weight behind country policies um, in the Arab Spring, I think particularly Libya and Egypt and also Syria could have looked a lot different today. But in the absence of U.S. leadership and the absence of the leadership of the Obama administration, um, the UAE were able to fiddle and, uh, and collude with particular groups on the ground in order to undermine the country project. That's particularly true in Egypt and in Libya, um, where the, the, the Emiratis are leading the counter-revolutionary or have led the counter-revolutionary uh, strategy. 
putting Sisi in power, as well as now trying to put Haftar in power as a military ruler. Um, that very much is a is something where the countries weren't prepared to be there in the long run. The countries were only there to facilitate. They weren't there to impose. And I think that's probably one of the major differences. So the strategy uh, was too naive to think that if you support the people, they will make their own choices. Um, they didn't account for the fact that you know there might be opposing, intervening, spoiling forces that could undermine it. And the Emiratis, on the other hand, were very strategic. They were not there to support. They were there to build. Um, so they went to Egypt and said, this is the regime we want, and we will make sure this regime will happen. They put billions of dollars in there, and they're still supporting Sisi in his counter-revolutionary efforts to clamp down on civil society. They're, they're supporting, supporting Haftar in an effort to impose military rule on Libya. Uh, they, were, they are not interested in any form of pluralism there, but it's a very black-and-white approach, very neoconservative in that way. Um, in in trying to impose a regime, and the the Emiratis are willing are in there. They have a degree of strategic patience, and they're in there for the long run. And they have allocated resources to see this through. I think we can now make a point uh, of or, or make a case of saying that the UAE are probably very overstretched. Um, but nonetheless, they are a lot more strategic and more realist in their approach to um, realizing that vision than the countries are. The book essentially argues that the Gulf Cooperation Council, the regional body that groups the six Gulf monarchies, is dead for all practical purposes as a result of the Gulf Rift. Where does that leave the regional security architecture, and what does that mean for countries like Kuwait and Oman that are somewhat caught in the middle? Yeah, this is a that's a very important point. So, I mean, the, the question of the GCC and the impact of the GCC is is has been around for longer than the Gulf crisis. Um, and it's a quite a long debate of what the role of the Gulf Cooperation Council could be as an international organization or uh, as an intergovernmental organization. And there are definitely pros and cons. And I think we've seen, especially under the reign of King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, we've seen a, 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 an endorsement of multilateralism and definitely a push into the right direction. Um, and, but the GCC has been an organization that has been founded by Saudi Arabia for, to support Saudi national interest for the most part, national, uh, particularly Saudi security interest. And so the, the evolution of that particular body um, has not really worked very well. So I think the, 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 the regional context has changed so dramatically since the GCC was for, uh, founded in the 1980s, early 1980s, that today the GCC needed to be reformed in order to, to make, it, uh, you know, make it resilient and make it uh, you know, enduring in, in this current context, so regardless of the Gulf crisis. So we've seen some of the issues of multilateralism, um, a, the surrendering of sovereignty to the organization way before uh, the current or the previous Gulf crisis in 2014. But this current crisis has now really, you know, put a nail in the coffin of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So meetings still happen. Um, you know, we've seen this week there was a a meeting between the chiefs of staffs of the GCC militaries, and they do discuss on a very shallow um, level um, some of the security issues, but the real decisions are not being made 
in the framework of the GCC, but most decisions that pertain to all types of policy um, are being made on a bilateral uh, or unilateral um, basis. And we can see that quite dramatically uh, um, in, when it comes to, to how to deal with this crisis. Um, there's been a very active um, uh, strategy by the UAE and Saudi Arabia to create this bilateral alliance. We've seen that in Yemen. Um, there, but there have also been attempts by the Saudis to build alliances with Kuwait on a bilateral level um, that at the moment is, hasn't really worked out that well. And then on the, on the other hand, also, the countries have, have built their alliances in the Gulf on a bilateral basis, so with Kuwait on Oman in particular, because the other big two have basically shut down their um, their diplomatic uh, their diplomatic channels. So um, the GCC, as such, is probably going to die the same slow death that the Arab League is, is is suffering from today. So it is a it's a facade of regional integration, uh, which only lives by the commitment of its individual member states. And there's been a clear commitment by the UAE and Saudi Arabia to no longer uh, commit to the GCC and see the GCC as a regional force. The policy they're driving is you're either with us or you're against us, uh, also within the context of the GCC. So the GCC can only be used when or the UAE and Saudi Arabia only want to use the GCC when it serves their own interests. When it doesn't serve their own interests, they are basically rejecting it. And that's not how multilateralism works. Um, So how does that leave Oman and Kuwait? So Bahrain, we probably should mention also, Bahrain is the smallest of the six GCC countries and is a country that, because of its um, dire economic situation, has become increasingly dependent on Saudi Arabia and has become somewhat of a vassal state of Saudi Arabia. Um, When it comes to foreign and security policy, the Bahraini government doesn't have the sovereignty to actually develop its own policies. It has to consult with Riyadh on on every move that they make. Um, And as such, Bahrain has already been trapped um, in in Saudi interests. Um, the, The big concern that I've seen over the last two years talking to uh, policymakers in Oman and in Kuwait, is that these two countries are very concerned that if Qatar was to fall and become a second Bahrain, um, that that could potentially have ripple effects for these two countries as well, because there would be the next one, uh, the next ones to follow. And also, Kuwait and Oman pursue policies uh, regionally that are that go against. Uh, the interest of the UAE and go against the interest of, of of Saudi Arabia, when particularly when it comes to Iran, and so they're very concerned that a pretext that was used by the UAE and Saudi Arabia to to um, to impose that that their current sanctions regime on Qatar, that such a pretext, uh, which was fighting terrorism and fighting Iran, that that such a pretext could be used to also make a move against Kuwait and Oman. But that was would only always uh, depend on how the Qatari case would play out. And luckily for Kuwait and Oman, um, I would say, um, the crisis hasn't worked in the Emirati or Saudi favor. And I think has discouraged them to take further steps into that direction. Um, but we see some issues with Oman when it comes to um, the Emiratis in particular have tried to, to meddle in internal uh, Omani affairs along the borders. 
Um, they are trying to also because Oman is at the brink of a succession crisis, um, with the Sultan being very, very ill and being very old. Over the next five to ten years, we'll definitely see the Sultan, the, the a change of leadership in Oman. In that leadership battle, um, it's still the succession question is still not being answered, and all Gulf countries are trying to get involved in that. Um, in in that in that succession question. And there's a fear in Oman that the Emiratis and the Saudis in particular are trying to invest in particular tribal areas um, in order to uh, court particular individuals who could have a um, who could have influence on the question of succession further on. Um, and so in Kuwait, the issue is more with, this, uh, with the Saudis in particular, um, where the southern uh, oil fields, which are being, uh, which are part of a demilitarized zone, um, are now being pressured by the Saudis because the Saudis have a remilitarized the zone on their part of the border as well as have started production on these oil fields, which were shared, uh, which are shared somewhat by Kuwait and, and, and Saudi Arabia, and and that has caused a bit of a rift between Kuwait and and Riyadh over the last year with Mohammed bin Salman traveling. Um, to Kuwait and then being somewhat not reaching an agreement that he wanted to have, and then he he left um, earlier. So there are tensions mounting on on these fronts as well, and both Kuwait and Oman are looking towards Qatar and see how this develops. Since the the crisis is currently at a stalemate, um, I think Oman and uh, and and Kuwait are relieved that they don't have to make further concessions here, um, um, and are standing quite firmly at least behind the scenes, quite firmly with the countries. Um, on, on, again, when it comes back to the facade, both Kuwait and Oman are embracing uh, a joint GCC approach wherever they can. But behind closed doors, if you listen to diplomats, policymakers, military leaders that I speak to, um, it's quite clear that they very strongly look towards Qatar uh, and are very sympathetic with the countries. Indeed, the book uh, projects the Gulf crisis as uh, intractable, which really means, I assume, that it's one more uh, intractable Middle Eastern dispute. <clears throat> and I guess one could say not only is the Qatari crisis in, uh, uh, intractable, but so is the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and, and that's another dimension of this crisis that goes beyond the earlier ideological rift that I was speaking about. But this rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia has, you know, ha- has been a, a given for, uh, since 1979. But I think it has never been as bad as it is today. So the mistrust that the Saudis have towards the Iranians and vice versa has definitely been exacerbated by the change of leadership uh, in Riyadh. So not just with King Salman, but particularly with his son, Mohammed bin Salman, um, taking over much of the important government portfolios. There is a, a clear securitization of anything Iranian. Uh, I, we see a, a regional integration of an anti-Iran front uh, whereby Saudi, Israel and, uh, and the Emiratis are taking, taking a lead and they oppose anything, any alliance that could potentially have the Iranians on board. And I think for the Saudis, as much as the Saudis have a problem with Qatari policies and support for opposition groups because they see this as well as a threat to, um, as a threat to domestic uh, regime security, they do see the, the Iran as probably the bigger issue. And the one story that probably 
for the for Mohammed bin Salman, and not probably. I mean, conversations I've had with Saudis, um, the the one. They, 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 so these the Saudis suggest that the one thing that broke the camel's back um, for for the Saudis was uh, basically the Qatari engagement with Iranian proxies in southern Iraq. So the whole story of these Qatari hunters who were captured in 2016 by a group uh, uh, called Qatar Hezbollah, which is a is a surrogate of the of the Iranians in Iraq. And their engagement, the Qatari engagement with with the Iraqi government, but also with Iraqi proxies in Iraq, in order to get these people relieved, to get these hunters relieved, and paying a considerable sum of money, I think that was a story that for the for the Saudis went too far because millions of dollars were paid in ransom to get these Qatari hunters freed, and. Uh, you know, you could make an argument that any government would do something like that in order to get their people freed. But for the Saudis, an indirect engagement with the Iranians in that particular way was not acceptable. And Qatar has a long history with with Iran, right? I mean, Qatar and Iran share the northern gas field. So there is a very pragmatic economic commercial relationship there. That commercial relationship is very, very vital for both countries. Both countries make a lot of money out of that North Field. So the management and security of the operations around the North Field uh, are highly, highly important for both countries. I would even go as far as to say that for Qatar, a country whose wealth depends so much on liquefied liquefied natural gas, LNG, uh, I would say that um, the the North Field and you know anything to do with the with the um, exploitation and production, uh, exploitation of the gas field as well as the production of LNG is the center of gravity for security and survival of the Qatari state. So obviously they need to have a, be on, they need to be on good terms with the Iranians. But this is not an ideological alignment. So the Qataris, as much as the Iranians might be an anti-status quo power as well in the region, um, when it comes to foreign and security policy, we do not see how the Iranians and the Qataris could ever cooperate, um, particularly when we look at Syria, when we look at Yemen, when we look at um, when we look at Iraq, the Qataris do not support um, Ira- Iran's policies, and they have confronted the the Iranians on this issue time and again. Um, but the Qataris are pragmatic in the same way that the Iranians are pragmatic. I mean, the Iranians do not agree with Qatar's policies across the region either. But both sides are pragmatic to come. And they don't. Both sides don't really see the world as a zero-sum game. While the Saudis and the Emiratis view the Arab world as a zero-sum game, and that's why how these two sides don't really get um, to find, you know, are not really able to find a common denominator. And I think that's um, that that is probably the, the key issue here. The divide between Iran and Saudi, however, is no longer one between. Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's a, an, a, a deeper ideological rift whereby the Saudis and the Emiratis are trying to buy and use their real politic, if you will, or real diplomacy um, to win over particular states in an effort to fight anything to do with Iran. So, um, and the Israelis obviously being part of this. And then let's not forget uh, another center of gravity of that crisis uh, is in Washington with the Trump administration and their hawkish approach as well towards Iran. So that divide is is a key divide that keeps on um, that keeps on dividing the region. And these days, the Saudis obviously being in the lead, 
But the neoconservative ideology that drives that fear of Iran and, you know, much of it being based on misinformation or disinformation about the Iranian purpose and the Iranian uh, strategic aim, in particular when it comes to their nuclear, uh, nuclear program. It, it seems quite obvious that the Iranians are being compliant with the JCPOA, but neither the Americans nor their proxies in the region, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, don't, um, you know, don't want to accept that fact. They don't want the Iranian Republic, the Islamic Republic of Iran, to continue playing the role that they're playing, which, you know, by objective standards, is quite um, destructive, the, 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 the policies that the Iranians are driving across the region. Um, but obviously, um, they, the approach that the hawkish new conservative uh, divide is taking is one of not engagement but confrontation. And I think that's the problem. The Qataris do not believe in confrontation. They believe in engagement. They've said it time and again that the only way to deal with the Iranians is through dialogue, um, not through uh, putting pressure, coercion or deterrence. And I think that the hawks in the Trump administration, Pompeo, um, but Bolton as well, uh, are people who are now um, prioritizing confrontation. And the Saudis are very willing to to confront as well. Obviously, the Yemen war in all of that hasn't really helped because the Iranians have been able to exploit the mess in Yemen that the Saudis have left over, you know, after decades and decades of 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 intervening on both sides, or not both sides, on all sides in the Yemen war. Um, the Iranians were able to exploit this and have, particularly since 2015, really uh, increased their foothold in Yemen and used this as a hub via their, uh, via their, their surrogate to, um, to attack the Saudis. And now the Saudis actually do have a casus belli and they do have an argument to make and say, we need to defend ourselves and we will do anything necessary to hurt the Iranians. And they're being embraced by the Trump administration, which is very, very problematic. And Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi is also someone who shares that anti-Iran um, fear and has securitized Iran in the same way, which causes an internal divide within the United Arab Emirates, because Dubai being a, a very important hub for, how, uh, for, for the engagement of the Iranians, as the Iranians do much of their deals, both privately as well as the, the state, the Iranian state, do many of their deals uh, via Dubai. So, you know, Dubai has always been a money laundering hub for uh, Iranians of, 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 any, of any color. And I think that, that we see some of the clampdown on Dubai um, by Abu Dhabi more recently has been based on the fear of, of Iran and you know, calling on Dubai to basically shut down any relationship that they might have or that they do have with, with Iran. And, and, and that costs uh, Dubai dearly as they, they, they basically lose hundreds of millions of dollars um, a worth of money coming through. So this divide is definitely another aspect of the Gulf divide um, that is now being exacerbated also because the Qataris, you know, and you can make that argument, are being driven into the arms of the Iranians because with the blockade in place, the Qataris didn't have any other choice um, than to use a corridor um, with, the, with the Islamic Republic of Iran in order to actually get anything in and out to, you know, on the one hand, getting, um, getting goods in and out of Qatar, but also getting their planes in and out of Qatar. And if you look at the map, there is only a very small corridor that is left for the countries, and they need to manage that corridor together with the Iranians. Moreover, um, you know, in order to get goods into the country, they need to be transshipped, and um, they needed to find new sources of, 
of um, of of for, for food produce, and these sources were either in Turkey or in Iran. And even the Turks are now using the the land way into um, into um, into Qatar or land way via the land route via Iran to Qatar. Um, so it is in order to supply Qatar, they need to rely on on Iranian help. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Trump administration hasn't been very tough on the Qataris, because the Qataris have made the point and said, look, we want to support your uh, policy of, um, you know, confronting the Iranians um, where we can, but you, we cannot do without these contracts because you, as the Americans, haven't done enough to bring an end to this crisis. And it is this crisis that has somewhat driven us into the arms of the Iranians. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, we seem to have a sort of a highly personalized alliance between the crown princes of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin uh, Salman. Yet there are differences between the two, and the two com- countries have uh, regularly seem to operate as loggerheads. So how stable or fragile is that alliance? Well, if you ask the Saudis, they will tell you it's a very, very stable alliance. If you ask the um, Emiratis, they in public would also tell you it's a very stable alliance, but they are a bit more careful because um, I think there is there is something happening behind the scenes here um, that I think many Saudis haven't really realized yet is that the Emiratis are using this relationship between MBS and MBZ and that relationship between these two countries to advance their own interests. So while the Saudis believe to have found a, a an enduring ally in the United Arab Emirates, um, the Emiratis are pursuing their own wider regional strategy. And that's a strategy that favors the UAE as a business hub. What is important for them here is to extend their, um, their, their, their link into the One Road, One Belt, China's One Road and One Belt initiative. And much of what the UAE are doing across the region in the Horn of Africa, in Northern Africa, um, as well as in, 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 in Aden, in Yemen, um, shows that this is really about the wider UAE influence. The UAE want to control this area, which is a key, if not the most important trading route in, on the globe. If you look at not just oil and gas, but all kinds of products being shipped from East Asia uh, into the West. So for the Emiratis, they do anything necessary to to maintain control of these particular important choke points, um, maintaining control of some of the hinterland of these ports that the Emiratis are controlling now. So the war in Yemen, as much as it was about helping the Saudis officially, um, has also been an attempt by the Emiratis to basically consolidate their control of southern Yemen. And if you see where the Emiratis are fighting and how they're fighting, they're putting a lot more um, they're putting a lot more effort um, into consolidating control over the south than really helping out the Saudis in the north. And you know what we've seen some of the rifts between in that alliance between the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been could be seen over the Socotra Island an island which is almost like an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean, which belongs to Yemen and has been um, occupied by the, by the Emiratis who were building a military outpost there. And that was something that for the Saudis went a step too far. And I think there was a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a struggle going on between the two until the Emiratis partially withdrew. And what we see there is 
that the Emiratis are pursuing their, again, even when it comes to the, their partnership with the Saudis, they're pursuing their interest as a form of a zero-sum game. Um, and they see any control that they can make as a potential, uh, as potential, as, even if they can make it, they see it as um, as as exploiting an opportunity. And even if, meaning, if exploiting an opportunity means you're going against the back uh, or behind the back of your ally Saudi Arabia, they're willing to do that. And the same is true in in Libya. In in Libya, the Emiratis have long been bogged down, but they have used the the Saudis when they came in handy. So Saudi Arabia has particular control over. Uh, what is called the Matkhali, uh, the Matkhali um, sect of quietist Salafism. Um, and these quietist Salafists are based in, in Saudi Arabia, and the Emiratis are using them in, uh, or using the, the sheikhs of the Matkhali school to basically uh, round up support for their, for their warlord Haftar in, in Libya. And they're using them as fighting squads in support of Haftar. So the Saudis came in handy in that regard. Um, but you, what you can see, it's a it's a mentor uh, mentee kind of relationship with Mohammed bin Zayed being the 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 more senior statesman and Mohammed bin Salman being the more junior um, who is learning from his mentor Mohammed bin Zayed. And in that top down relationship, this senior junior relationship, the Saudis are playing the role of a facilitator under the control of the Emiratis. And I think the that that is an important uh, point to make is that. This alliance between Saudi Arabia and the UAE is not an alliance on par. I think it's an alliance that is very much that very much favors the UAE and UAE interests. And Saudi Arabia, much of the uh, the stupid decisions and uh, short sighted decisions that came out of Saudi Arabia over the last two years, you know, Khashoggi being one of them, uh, uh, haven't really helped the Saudis, but they have helped, um, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, detracting some of the negative attention from the Emiratis to the Saudis. So the, it has created somewhat of a shield behind which the Emiratis can hide. So the Saudis have gotten their fair share of criticism, not just for the Qatar crisis, but also for their handling of the crisis in Lebanon, um, the way they've dealt with internal dissent, the way they've dealt with, with uh, activists internally, and obviously the Khashoggi affair, um, while the Emiratis have gotten away, not with murder, but they've gotten away with a very, very toxic, zero-sum, a very aggressive regional policy, where we see them now being engaged in Sudan, where they've been engaged in, in, in Egypt, in Libya. Um, they've tried to reach out to, uh, to the interim government of, of Algeria, and, and they have opened their doors to the regime in Damascus. So in that way, the Emiratis are very much a small state that are punching way above their weight. And all the attention that the international community has given to the Gulf crisis has focused on a divide between Qatar and Saudi primarily, with the Emiratis somewhat being able to get away with it. And so in that respect, I think the Emiratis are using the Saudis whenever they can to achieve their own interests. And I think sooner or later, the Saudis will wake up and, and realize that. And, and then it's the question how sustainable this relationship really is in the long run. In the very few minutes that we have left, can we briefly talk about uh, the role of tribes, particularly given the fact that the book argues that the uh, tribes, especially in times of, uh, uh, of uncertainty about the social contract in a country, and that's certainly the case in the Gulf at the moment, 
that the tribes in, in those situations often have greater legitimacy than the state itself. Uh, I think that 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 was definitely true for much of um, history in the Gulf until very recently, until I would say the early 2000s. You could make a case that particularly in Saudi Arabia, the tribe is more important than the state, and the state has made an a, a, an inst- has in, in in many ways have institutionalized tribalism within the social political structures of the state. That's true for Saudi Arabia. Um, in in the smaller countries, tribalism definitely plays a role, um, or, and tribes play a very important role. But we can see across the Gulf there's been an initiative over the last couple of years in particular, particularly since the Arab Spring, to consolidate a top-down nationalism, whereby the tribe um, is supposed to be absorbed by a wider centralized nationalist belief. And I think, again, here the... the um, the, the country that's on the forefront in this initiative has been the United Arab Emirates. They have been very much, very strong in their nationalism and tribalism has been somewhat faded out to an extent that it almost doesn't play a role anymore in the way it used to um, in, in, in the United Arab Emirates. But we also see it in Qatar. So in Qatar, the tribe uh, does play a role, definitely a stronger role than in the UAE, but not as as strong a role as it does in in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, and also in Qatar, there's been an, an attempt to say that tribalism is a remnant of the past. Tribalism is potentially uh, a challenge to uh, to the, uh, to the central leadership that can be exploited, and it has been exploited in the past. Um, we see particularly that the Almari tribe in southern Qatar, which is a Bedouin tribe, which is a transnational tribe, as most of these tribes are transnational. Um, so they have uh, leadership uh, and follow, followership across the border. Um, they can be instrumentalized, and the Saudis have tried to instrumentalize these tribes for their own purposes. And there have been attempts during the crisis to steer up support um, among the Almari tribe in Qatar, who are country citizens, and some of them are dual nation, uh, citizens and multiple uh, nationalities, to steer up support um, for Saudi, for the Saudi and Emirati cause against the Emir Qatar, um, that hasn't really uh, been fruitful. I don't think it has in any way had any impact on the crisis. But there's been an, there has been an attempt, and this attempt has been made time and again, and has been made in the in the attempted coup by Saudi Arabia uh, in Qatar in 1996. So it is it's been viewed even by the country as a potential potentially a Trojan horse uh, that can be exploited, and that's why there has been an initiative. Uh, to instill more nationalism. And we've seen after the crisis, for example, so at the time when I used to live in Qatar, on National Day, the emir would go to each tent of each tribe and tribal leader and congratulate them on National Day. When after 2017, we see on, t- on, on National Day, each, uh, you know, tribes don't have their own individual tents anymore. They're all in one national tent. Um, and that's a, that's a very strong message. And in, Sudan, in, um, in Saudi Arabia, we see the same thing. Uh, we see a lot of top-down nationalism um, and an attempt to basically any attack on Saudi Arabia, any criticism of Saudi Arabia is being, um, being um, uh, opposed or undermined by very strong Saudi nationalism. Everything is about, if you criticize my country, you criticize me. Um, and again, that goes against tribalism. There is an, very much an attempt to build a centralized state around Mohammed bin Salman and um, his uh, followership and create the sense 
that um, basically Saudi nationalism is more important uh, uh, than tribal identity. And I get, again, I do think that obviously that takes time, but over the years, I think we think we I think we will see that tribal identity will fade out. But only, and that's the caveat here, is only when the state can actually deliver public goods. And I think that's the, the key question mark here. In Qatar, that's no issue. In the Emirates, that's not an issue. But in, in Saudi in particular, it is an issue. Uh, and it's an issue in Oman and in Bahrain as well, um, where you know the state is no longer able to provide public goods in the same way that they used to. So the rentier state social contract no longer works with these countries. And that's a crisis along the, you know, further down the route. Um, which I think is a key, if not the key challenge and the key insecurity risk for these countries moving forward. Andreas, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but before I let you go, <clears throat> where do you go from here in terms of new projects? So my new book, so I've started a new book project. Um, so I've got another book that's just been released called Surrogate Warfare, and I'm combining the Surrogate Warfare book with this book on the Divided Gulf, to write a book about the weaponization of narratives, um, which uh, looks in particular at um, a subversion, cyber subversion, but more widely subversion, how uh, information can be used to manipulate how people think about the reality. And the one of the case studies is going to be the Middle East, because much of Middle Eastern studies today is no longer about solid empirical analysis, and it shouldn't be. Uh, it should be. It should also look behind the kind of um, frames that we're using to analyze and be we need to be more critical and more reflective of the ontological predispositions that we're using to analyze the Middle East. So what are the main narratives that are being used? Um, so think tankers, academics, journalists, anybody who writes something and contributes to discourse on the Middle East use narratives and biases. And I think social media, um, you know, the echo chambering of much of our... Um, of our information consumption and processing has led to a fact where every you know academic journalist or think tanker is getting drawn to one or other or one side or the other side of thinking about the Middle East. So we see a polarization of Middle Eastern studies, and I think uh, that's a very important uh, study. And that's my my next book is going to be on that on the cognitive um, on the cognitive vulnerabilities of um, of those people who study the uh, the media vulnerabilities um, that can be exploited and are being exploited, particularly by the United Arab Emirates, in try in shaping how policymakers, uh, journalists in the West think about the Middle East. And um, yeah, so that's very much in the making. And um, I'm in the, in the first chapter now, and it, it, it will it takes some time to write. Andreas, that sounds like a great project, and I wish you the best of luck. Luck. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.